Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I am almost by Voda. This week, I got a big lecture series I'm doing here in Baltimore on the uh, First World War and Orthodox Jews. That's taking up a lot of time, and I have wedding actually performed today, and a whole bunch of other things. So I'm just going to try to squeeze this in uh, to do something once a week on the yard side. I was looking through the list, and Sivan and I fixed on uh, the Shemar Munim, Yosef Irgos, who's one of my favorites. And even though it's a very complex subject, but I just want to touch upon this. Here's a person with a big rabbi in Italy, which I spoke about from time to time uh, in the late 16, early 1700s. So I think his years are ooh, 1685 to like, see, was 40, to 1730. So he didn't live long. He lived old to be 45 years old. This is someone from Livorno. I've talked about these things from time to time. Uh, Livorno was uh, is a city in in the Italian coast, in Tuscany, north of Rome, in other words. And there, especially in the 1600s, 1700s, was a very unusual Jewish community. The only one really in Italy that did not have a ghetto. It was all Spanish-Portuguese Jews. No Ashkenazes were allowed in. You, know, you could stay like for a day or two and then out. The uh, city was set up as a... Ronald Reagan, uh, a free economic zone. You know, in other words, no, no uh, laws, pure capitalism. You know, you can uh, no no labor unions, no uh, you know zoning, none of that kind of stuff. Just pure capitalism with the people making the money and giving a piece of it off the top to the government, to the Duke of the uh, uh, Grand Duke of Tuscany. And it was very successful in the sense that it turned into a major port with a lot of commerce, and the Jews, there were about three thousand something like that, Portuguese Jew there, which was a lot once upon a time, uh, were very successful. And it became a rich community. It probably was the richest Sephardi community, probably, in the 1600s, 1700s. And they controlled a big part of the trade, of the Mediterranean, that sort of thing. And uh, they were from, in the Spanish-Portuguese way, but uh, the, the elite was really from, and the person we're talking about, the Shomer Muni, Rav Yosef Irgas, Irgas is a Spanish name, uh, was mamish from. Uh, so here's a community that had a lot of well-to-do people. They had a basin, a rabbi, and all that kind of stuff. And they were pretty generous in the 16th, 1700s in bankrolling Sephardic institutions like yeshivas, kolels. And uh, if you were a, a, a Sephardic rabbi, you wanted to get a safer published, if it, was any, if it was any good, you know, like from North Africa or from the Middle East, if you went to Livorno and you could persuade them that your safer has worth, they will uh, publish it for free. No, you'll find backers, which is why most of the Sephardic Sfarim of the 16th and 1700s were indeed, including Sidurim, I mean, yeah, were actually published in Livorno. It's uh, kind of interesting. You could be a poor Tamil from Tunisia or Syria or wherever, and uh, if you get to Livorno and you meet the right people, they will publish it. That's I'll say it again. That's how most of the Sephardic uh, um, 
Sfarim, including the very Chasha ones, were published. So in that sense, it was kind of, kind of a central culture. Uh, but again, in the Sephardic, the very elite way, you know, there's a certain elite element of society that had the, the, the culture, the rabbinic culture. And the person we're talking about, whose yard it was not long ago, was definitely a member of this. I think his father was a rabbi there of some kind or another. Livorno is a Spanish-Portuguese uh, community, so that means the Basin doesn't have much to say about Choshen Mishpat matters. I think I've mentioned it in the past. You know, uh, this is, and the money matters are run by the Balabatim, <laughs> you know, the merchants, they don't trust the rabbis to Pascal and that kind of stuff. However, Gitin, Kedushin, Orachayim, you know, that sort of thing was in the hands of the uh, Basin. Just a very interesting uh, community, a prosperous one. And here's somebody who had the good fortune of living all of his life, not a long life, within that community. And he was well regarded. He was, you know, he was from the right family, you might say. And he even married a relative of his. So, you know, everything stayed like that. And uh, he wanted to be a Tamil Chacham and he learned up a storm and that's who he was. But then what's unique about him? In the case of Rabbi Yosef Irgas, that I'm talking about today, he is a very, very interesting figure in the history of Kabbalah. That's not all he was, but that's really famous. I came across him many, many years ago, back in there, Israel, when they used to have a bookstore in Yeshiva, and I saw a skinny book. It's called Shomer Amunim. And for some reason, it caught my attention, and I bought it, and I uh, didn't look at it for many years. And uh, it turned out to be very remarkable. Shomer Amunim. Uh, they call it Shomer Amunim Akadmon. Uh, let me explain uh, for a minute what's going on over here. There was... A big rise of Kabbalah interest, Kabbalistic interest, starting in the 1500s and it hit the, the Mediterranean world, the whole Jewish world, in the late 1500s and the 1600s. This is the golden age, you might say, or, or perhaps I should say the radioactive age of Kabbalah, the early modern era, it, which is now in the, in the process of a revival, but I'm, you know, which is strange in our time in the 21st century, but I'm talking about long ago, and uh, really spread like wildfire. A lot of mistakes and the misunderstanding of Kabbalah, but that's what happens when you get involved in this kind of business. And uh, the most, uh, you know, the Kabbalah sometimes makes the most uh, uh, wide ranging claims of authority, authenticity, and things like that. And everybody went along with it. Now, in Venice, one of the rabbis, uh, Yehuda Ariyamanda, Leona Mandana, uh, was a big rabbi over there, but he's more of the rationalist variety. And apparently it really bothered him that people are talking Kabbalah stuff and a lot of it he thought is not true and baloney and the truth claims there. I don't know if he threw it all out the window, but maybe did or not. But he uh, wrote for himself like a, uh, a book in which he uh, put together all the arguments against Kabbalah, but he never published in his lifetime, which is why it's controversial among historians today whether he's really the author, but I think he is. And... Basically, he said like this, look, the emperor has no clothes, let's call a spade a spade, and this is all a bunch of baloney. And he brings all of his arguments to prove the falseness of the Kabbalistic tradition. But he never published it. On the other hand, you don't need to publish things in 15, 16, 1700s. People make copies, and they circulate in manuscript form. And something as trafe, as I just described, is Mayim Gnubium Taco. Lots of copies were made. And this became sort of a Bible for those who we're against Kabbalah. You know, like I said, I'm a firm Jew, I believe in the Nigla, and this mm-hmm. Nister is baloney. That, mm-hmm. that kind of uh, uh, attitude, which was very, uh, ooh, what shall I say? Uh, uh, you know, uh, controversial is not, is not the word, right? Now, um, 
I think he called it Ari Nohim, if I remember correctly. Uh, and I say it was spread out there. Well, what was the result? The Kabbalists themselves didn't want to give this too much publicity, but they themselves uh, were bothered by his arguments. And over the course of the next 200 years, four, four distinct authors, at least I know four, wrote replies to him, each one in a different way. And each one to vindicate the truth of the Kabbalistic tradition, and number two, to articulate the principles of Kabbalah in uh, a way that's uh, rational or clear or something like that. Um, the first that I, the first I know of is Rabbi Yosef Erkos and the Shomer Munim, in which case he u- adopts the following strategy. He uses like the Kuzari or Plato. They're two protagonists, and he makes a dialogue, like a debate between them. The... Uh, One's like a Litvak, you might say, you know, in other words, non-Kabbalistic from me. And the other one's a Makobal. And one's called Sha'altiel. Get the name Sha'altiel, yes, God. He's the Litvak, so to speak. And um, and the other one's Yehoyada. That's how it goes. And obviously, if you're the author, you control the dialogue. I mean, that's why people like the dialogue format. If I wanted to favor this side, obviously, I'll skew it in such a way that the dialogue favors that side. So, in the book I'm talking about, which is not a fat safer at all, you have this whole long well, colloquy between Shaltiel on the one hand, Yehoyah on the other. How do you know the couple is true? Maybe it's all a bunch of baloney. Well, the other guy says, I'll explain it. I'll show you how it's true. Well, what about this and this? Well, I'll answer that. And they go on and on over the facticity and the historicity of the Kabbalistic division, which is just fascinating. And uh, remember, this is being written around 1720, something like that, early on. And um, once they get past that, then the guy says, wow, you've convinced me of the truth of Kabbalah, of the historicity of it, but I don't understand certain points in there. What's the story with the Kabbalists say this or that? I remember Simpson was like a very big deal to him. You know, how, what does it mean God contracted himself uh, to make room for the universe? Like, what does all that stuff mean? It sounds crazy. And the other guy says, no, no, I'll explain to you exactly what it means. And uh, it's written in a very philosophical style, a very uh, organized style, and the Hebrew is wonderful. And uh, that became a kind of response to the skeptics against Kabbalah, which is just kind of interesting. So, you know, the ostensible reason for a publication book is not put in the front. It's not saying this response to Leon and Modena, but that's what it was. Now, he's not the only one. A younger contemporary of his in Italy wrote another sefer exactly along these lines, but in a different form, and that's the Ramchal, Ramos Chaim Tzato. And the two men did not like each other, by the way. Uh, one is, uh, what's the Tzato? Havikuach ben Choker Makobel. Get the title? Vikuach, a debate, ben Choker, between a Chakira guy, a rationalist, a Litvak, as I say, and, and, and Makobel. And once again, you have a dialogue in which one says, how do you know this is true? The other one says, I'll explain to you. What does this mean? I'll explain what that means also. Which part is literal? Which part is not literal? Both people, the Yosef Irgas and the Meshachim Sato, grow great pains to say that when you're talking Kabbalistic stuff, none of this stuff is literal. It's all figurative. It's all a mushal. Keep that in mind. They keep pinching themselves. Uh, that's the way the Kab- Kabbalah you know, seems to write, that you can say all the wildest stuff as long as you constantly put an asterisk. This is not literal. This is not literal. This is not literal. And he quotes their reason, making that point very often in the Shem Remunim. And uh, you end up with 
what I would call, or what others call also, the philosophical presentation of Kabbalah, which he tried to take, you know, some of these ideas and yesodas that most of us don't have any idea what it's talking about, but explain them in ways that make uh, a philosophical sense. Uh, that's two books. Then in the 19th century, very interestingly, there were two Litvish rabbis. So I, they, uh, what happened was that this manuscript that I talked about was circulating, it was against Kabbalah, actually got published by a Moscow in the early 1800s. I met Reggio, and it must have made a splash. Let's see, find two big Litvish are up on him. Of the unusual variety, one was the Radal of David uh, Luria of Bechov. He's like in the back of the Gemara, you know. And uh, he has a thing called uh, Kadmus Sefer Zohar, which, of course, obviously, by the title, defends the historicity of the Zohar and the Kabbalistic tradition. And again, he goes and responds without saying who he's responding to, to all these arguments. And then you have Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Chavar, who's like a Talmud of the Talmud of Vilna Gon, and this is Vilna Gon in his, wearing his hat of Kabbalah. Uh, not Vilna Gon wearing his hat of uh, just uh, learning, you know. Now it's the Vilna Gon, the Nister, not the Vilna Gon, the Nigla. And uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Chavar is extremely famous. And he has, say for, I think it's Mogin Vitsino. So you have four swarm I just mentioned, all of which responding to the same uh, challenge, and each one doing it in their way and with their own tweak. One is the Shem Ramuni, one is Vikuch ben Chokor Makobol, third one is Kadmus Sefer Azor, and the fourth one is Mogin Betzina, I think. And uh, the, the, each one is, is, is trying to make, in the course of these four, you have a whole case for Kabbalah. You understand? Now, what's really interesting about this is, well, many things are interesting. One of the things interesting is that he lived in Italy, Yosef Ergas, our hero today, all his life in Italy. He learned Kabbalah from Rabbi Yom Cohen, who was a big Makul, who learned it from uh, Moshe Zakudo, who learned it from, I forget who, from uh, a student of Chaim Vital. Uh, you know, so you have like a mom's like a Masora, you know what I'm saying? Like a, a certain chain of command. And um, he was interested, one second. And he was, I'm sorry, he was interested in getting the, you know, the story exactly right. Uh, these are, they, without getting into too many details for a talk like this, they're big debates in the Kabbalists, who got the Arizal right? You know, there was a, Charles Rugg who went to Italy right after the death of the Ari, say, and he interpreted it in a certain way, and uh, that's from Rama Mipano, you know, and uh, then there are others who say that he didn't get it right, and only Rukhain Batal understood what the Ari says, and these are other students of his. And these issues were raging among the elites of the Kabbalistic world in the 16 and 1700s. And smack in the middle of all this comes Shabtai Tzvi business, right? Because Shabtai Tzvi was in the 1660s. And after the end of the Shabtai Tzvi episode, and his, even after his death, Sabatianism, the Shabtaim, were running around and were a big deal. And uh, our Rebiosev Iriel were right in the middle of all this because one of the famous Sabatian types, Nechemi Chayun, was somebody who went around and said he really understands the Kabbalah better than anybody else. Of course, he was a Sabatian, and he ended up stopping in Livorno, and Yosef Irgaz called him out, and, and, and they had a big fight, and each one threw at each other all the, the invective and the tooth and nail, and you know he called him a faker, and he called him back a faker, and all that sort of thing, a heretic. Uh, and here's the point. The Sabatian was kind of poisoned the atmosphere, didn't it? And it made it seem like a lot of people getting Kabbalah go off the derech, which was happening. Now, a lot of people were not going off the derech. 
but there are plenty that did. And without going into too many details, things hit a point that in the 1750s in, in Poland, not in Italy, in Poland, the rabbis got together and they said nobody should study Kabbalah until like, you know, you're 30, 40 years old and that sort of thing. Uh, and stay away from this. That's where you and I get like this tradition that we hear all the time, you know, Kabbalah's not for everybody. And uh, here's the point I want to make. When all these rabbis got together right after the Frankist uh, uh, uprising in, in the 1750s mm-hmm. in Poland, they said nobody should study Kabbalah except two Sfarm. There are two Sfarm that you're allowed to read because they're written so clearly you can't misunderstand what they're meaning and you can't go off the derech. One was a uh, savior from uh, Moshe, the great, late great Moshe Cordovero. And the other one was this little book that I'm talking about, the Shem Remunim. This uh, skinny little book. Which uh, they said, you know, is written in such a clear way that, uh, you know, it's not going to cause anybody to do anything wrong. Now, uh, the point I want to make is, the point I wanted to make is that they're not, the, the rabbis who said that this safer is a good safer weren't necessarily agreeing with all of his Kabbalistic points. There's some huge debate, which I myself don't understand, about whether symptom is to be understood literally or not literally. Uh, between and and the two great exponents of it in the 18th century, one was Yosef Irgas, who said that when they say God is Mitzantim himself, that he withdraws to create room for the creation of the world, whatever that means, is to be taken figuratively and not literally. And then his opponent was uh, a contemporary of his, another big Makubal in Italy, Immanuel Hayriki, who uh, said no, it's to be taken literally. And Ricky actually went to Israel and he said, I saw the kiss I read myself. The, uh, you know, from uh, Chaim Betal and those sorts of things. And uh, Deville Nagon, I'm told, side with uh, Ricky. And you end up with these kind of arguments, you understand, which are to- so beyond our world that uh, they're kind of interesting. Me, myself, and I made a chavrusa a couple years ago with another couple of eccentrics, as we were described the other day. And uh, we went through the whole thing from beginning and line by line to whole Shemar Munim. And uh, it's written very well. You know, some parts are a little uh, strange. And anybody can read it. You understand? If, if you want an introduction to Kabbalah of a certain type, even though you understand that on certain points others will disagree, but you could do a lot worse. You understand? Anybody wants an introduction to the subject, it was written as an introduction to the subject for the intelligent layman, shall we say. Uh, I'm serious about this. And uh, you could do a lot worse than, than understanding the Shem Ramunah, which is a classic. There's the Shomer Munim HaKadmon. There's another Shomer Munim in Israel, or Baral HaChasidim in the, the Meish. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about the Shomer Munim of Yosef Yergos. I saw once online somebody translating in English, believe it or not. Or maybe one of the Torskis. But it was like a wooden translation. It won't help you. The book really deserves what I would call an art school translation. You know, in other words, a, a, a user-friendly translation. And the Hebrews of such a nature could be done. Uh, but uh, the Shem Munim is like a classic, therefore, that I'm calling your attention to, of uh, Jewish literature. I would uh, uh, throw in about Yosef Irgas, because I don't have much time today to go into this, that uh, he also was a big Nigla person. He was a big Talmud Chacham, uh, which gives, uh, shall I say, uh, valorization to his Kabbalistic ideas, because you don't want one of these people just knew Nigla, I'm sorry, just knew Nister and not knew Nigla, because then you wonder... Do they know the Gemara and all that in order to, you know, be able to ground all this Kabbalistic knowledge in um, in the necessary Talmudic knowledge? He certainly did. He's Rosh Hashiva, Lo Shiva, 
uh, he has Shalos and Shuvas, believe it or not. Since this week, my friends, is Parsha Baloshka happens to be, I see in the Shalos and Shuvas Sefer, he had in the response to the book he has called Divri Yosef. I happen to have a copy of it. It's, uh, you know, just photos data from the old one long ago. I bought it years ago because I was just interested in Yosef Irgas. And I know he has a very, I'll just share with you a tiny little piece. Maybe you can use this for what it's worth uh, for, for this Shabbos. Uh, and it's uh, so short that I can uh, uh, read it to you. He's had questions from all over the world, actually. I mean, from all over the Mediterranean. So he was a, he was Mamsha Posi. He corresponded with the Mishnah Melech, for example. There's a lot to talk about just as a safer Divri Yosef. Uh, I, I'm sure it's online, you know, the Hebrew books. And, uh, you know, it's a, one of these classic uh, Sephardic Italian type of uh, Shalos and Shubh books. But let me let me share this little piece over here. Uh, again, this is Parsha Balosa. So I'm reading you, it says, it, it, this is what they write to him. Betargum Yonasim Benuzil Parshas Baloso Pasuk Vayishoru Shnei Anoshim Vamachne. In other words, about Eldon and Medod, in this week's Parsha, who say Moshe, Meis, Vyashu, you know, when, when, when Moshe, let's just recap here for a second. Moshe loses it this week's Parsha. He says, I can't take it anymore. The Jews are driving me crazy. Kill me. You know, fire me. I don't want this anymore. Hargini no Harog. Those are the words of Moshe. I can't take all the complaints of the Jews. And Hashem said, like this, take it easy, don't lose it. I'll tell you what, we'll get you 70 helpers. This is the first Sanhedrin. I think it says. The Hashem said, I will pick, we'll get 70 elders, they will they will be like your counsel, they'll take a lot of the uh, heat off of you, all the other responsibilities. And uh, among them, turns out to be Eldon and Medod. So who are these people? It doesn't say who they are. But the Targum Yonason. Benazil apparently says, or the pseudo, you know, some Benazil says, that Eldon abated Hoyubonel Shal Yocheved, that they were like related to Moshe, half brothers of Moshe, but they, Eldon and Abed were two brothers, and the mother was Yocheved, but Kishigarshe Amram, Yocheved, as many will know, got divorced from Amram. Hochman is Elisafan Ben Parnach, she ended up marrying another person, Elisafan Ben Parnach, who is connected with Parshish Korach, Vyelda Eldon Medad. So the point of this questioner is that according to this Targum Yonasan, Eldon and Medad were brothers. Then the problem comes as follows. How could they be in Sanhedrin? You're not allowed to be relatives in the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. How could they be on Sanhedrin? Right? It's a fair question. So how do we understand that? So here's a, 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 a wonderful little example of trying to take that. I got it, the thing, and mix it together with Aloha. And Riyosi Irgas, who has a very clear mind, you read the Sefer Shemar Muni, I have a very clear mind. He gives a very clear and plain, simple answer. Nir Laniyaz Daiti says, in my opinion, Lataris, Alpine Navua Shiny. Look, we're talking about the very first Sanhedrin that was set up in history. How does the Sanhedrin work as an institution? They used to have 70 people or 71, whatever. And when it was uh, operating, so if somebody died, they elected a new guy on board. Uh, who else knows who should be in Sanhedrin? All better than the Sanhedrin themselves. So let's say there were 70 people, or however, 71 maybe, and uh, someone died or two people died. They themselves would choose the successors. So it was a self-perpetuating kind of institution. We find such things. But wait a minute, my friends. How did the first Sanhedrin get established? The answer is God picked them. It says those words in Parsha Baloscha. God esfali shimish. Gather for me 70 people, which indicates Hashem, you know, uh, is choosing 70 people. 
And he says, God says, I will take some of the spirit of you, Moses, and put it on them. So the original Sanhedrin was set up under divine, uh, you know, orders. Well, if God picked two brothers, then don't say anything. You know, shut up. Uh, that's the exception. He obviously felt, look, I don't know what Hashem feels. I'm not a Navi, but if you felt that in this case, it'll be fine. So you can't bring a rye from the very first Sanhedrin that's ever set up in history for afterwards. Uh, and he brings an interesting riot. What do you do with the Deborah case? Devora was a Shofetes. That means, as we understand, she was on the Sanhedrin. She was the head of Sanhedrin. Ah, a woman can't be on the Sanhedrin, etc., etc. The answer is, she was. if that happened, there was a Nevoa. I know God indicated in that generation, I want Devora on there. That's how Yosirika says it. So when you have direct divine intervention, you can sort of bypass the rules of who gets on and who doesn't get on the Sanhedrin. Mm-hmm. That's, like I say, a very straightforward and, 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 and simple kind of question. And that's one probably, I don't know, did you ever hear that? I never thought, heard it in the context of Parashat Baloscha. There are many other long and short uh videos over here. And there's a lot more to say on the fights of the Kabbalists on some of these technical issues. But I am really under pressure of time today. So with that, I will say I recommend to, to those who can to uh, look up or get a hold of the Sefer Shomer Munim. As I said before, you can't go wrong with it, and you'll have a one clear mahalach. Not the only, but one clear mahalach in the matter of Kabbalah for those that are interested in that. And with that I say, have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.